0: Welcome to the Whiskey Congress, honest, open talk, dedicated to speaking the truth to those who are open to hearing it. Black, white, right, left, most importantly, honest, bold, and fueled by good whiskey. In Whiskey Veritas, we are Whiskey Congress. Join the evolution. Whiskey Congress is back in session. Steve and I are together in the Cleveland studio we have a guest calling in, a guest we've heard from before but have not spoken to in a very long time. And I'll say a too long period of time. Ben, a.k.a. Market Ben, a.k.a. at existential e x i 10 ial on Twitter. No, actually he changed it to oh. the King of Convexity. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. The, the, the Twitter stuff <laughs> is oh, using Steve's to domain. I might
1: have to give a on that, but yeah, no, it's a slightly different Twitter to handle, but that's okay. No, it's it's Ben, it's your old friend Ben, Market MarketBen. And uh, happy to be here, Jim. It's good to hear from you and Steve, man. This will be fun.
2: It's good to have you. Steven, how are you? I am good. I am flustered. was an interesting day at work. got to spend some time at a dairy factory um, in my housing development project, which super confusing, but that's where I was. I was hoping you got
0: run over run- by a cow like the horse that <laughs> hit you at
2: UMass. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> no. there. I was not harmed, and there were no cows harmed in uh, my pursuit of... of Uh, urban development. All right.
0: So, Steve, um, you know, Ben has always come and talk about market stuff. There's a ton
2: going on. You said Mm -hmm. you had some topics you wanted to focus on, so go ahead. Yeah, Ben, I mean, obviously, it's been uh, an interesting time in the market. If you were smart, you um, recognized that there was a shift, you know, post-COVID. I think a lot of people jumped into the market because there there were uh, some, we'll call them easy wins for people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you had a lot of people who had a lot of, you know, free time all of a sudden who decided that they were instantly, uh, you know, market experts. Uh, and then you had the whole GameStop and AMC things um, that really sort of took off and, um, you know, caused a, a number of, of of issues across the board. Um, and now we've we've kind of gone into this this uh, sort of very volatile market that's been, that's been up and down. And if you are smart and have studied the market, then, then you've been able to adjust. Um, you know, I can happily say I I made some, some moves myself where I really haven't seen any losses. Um, you know, I've been doing less in options just because in terms of bandwidth and time, my personal time options is something that you really need to be able to pay attention to almost in real time. um, so, you know, I've shifted more towards, you know, long term, you know, long term assets that I felt, uh, w- you know, had the ability to grow or were good dividend stocks that were, you know, giving quality returns. Um, but let's first talk about um, if you want to address sort of the market volatility we've seen over the last month, um, if you want to maybe get into some of the causes and then where do you like, do you see market stabilization coming, you know, on the horizon?
1: Yeah, no, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, good good questions. I mean, look, uh, when it comes to just the volatility we've seen, uh, it's, it's in fact a, almost a perfect mirror from what we saw in uh, the previous year when we saw that weakness from early September that got bid up in October. It's not exact, it's not totally congruent, but it's very similar. Um, but there, you know, I think with this particular market, obviously, there's been concerns about inflation, and that's largely what's uh, driven the price action. Because as you guys know, I mean, there's there, there's what we would call narrow breadth that's existed in the market for quite some time now. And that's really the, the big mega cap tech names, right? What they call the FANG names. And when there's concerns about inflation and you have cost of capital rise, in this case, risk-free rate, which would be the 10-year yield on the US Treasury, uh, discounted cash flow models that basically dictate what these valuations should look like in terms of multiple these things get compressed and and these stocks tend to sell off because of concerns really fear about inflation not so much as inflation totally materializing of course we've had i think you guys had pointed this out uh or we had discussed it prior to getting on live here tonight but you know obviously you had a cpi print pce prints these are year over year in fact that's what now that i recall right now in real time You know how we got connected tonight because we had that tweet, and you guys responded. I said, you know, let's just have a talk
2: about it. Yeah, and and so let's 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 actually dig into the inflation numbers a little bit more, right? So you know, everyone, you know, and a lot of this is there. It's directly connected to politics, right? There's so much in terms of the discussion around it, right? Like, so if you're if you're you know anti Biden and you're conservative, Trump supporter, Republican, whatever, um, you're saying. It's you know, this inflation is the is the direct, you know, the root cause for the inflation is President Biden and his policies and everything that he's doing. Um, so first, I think we should sh- we should address, like you know, looking at inflation year over year, where are we? Is it too high? Is it right on track? And then also, are there is is it truly Biden's policies that are driving, the either inflation or fear of right or is this sort of uh you know anticipated based off of the last 18 18 to 24 months prior
1: okay well there let me unpack a lot of that yeah because number one you touch on an important point which is this has been politicized and, and what's interesting is that the, the issue of inflation is actually um it's a It's a point of intersection for all different types of political ideologies. It's not just the people that are, you know, kind of far-right MAGA-type guys that are looking for any reason to throw bombs at uh, the Biden administration, in this case via inflation. It's also the crypto geeks, you know, the inflationistas, right, the Peter Schiff, gold bug types, everybody that's like the doomsday, like, oh, my God, inflation is going to crush us all. This is Jimmy Carter 1970s. Stag, it's really stagflation more so than inflation. That's the big boogeyman. Um, Define stagflation. Stag, st- stagnant.
0: I've never heard the term stag, stagflation yeah, stag, before.
1: Stag, stagflation is just what happened in the 70s when you actually had a, a, a declining GDP with increasing inflation. So stagflation oh, okay. means that the broader economy from a GDP standpoint is eroding and moving the wrong direction while inflation is rising. There's nothing wrong with inflation in the right type of environment. And I kind of feel like we are in kind of the right type of environment uh, to where inflation you know it's it's not necessarily as bad as people think. And and again, you know there's we can look at these idiosyncratic data points, you know, people have pointed to like lumber if you guys remember a couple of year uh, excuse me a couple of months back when lumber oh, spiked yes. and yeah. we, we I had some fun with it right on Twitter, you know, yeah. making some funny jokes with it, memes and stuff. But you know, used Which, cars. Although
2: I will say, Ben, I was not super thrilled with some of those because you know, dealing in housing and construction, the lumber prices were <laughs> not a joking matter. You know, when I'm when I'm yeah, doing so a finance closing, by this yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to you know, I'm trying to figure out how much is it going to cost to build these 200 apartment units. And they're just like, it could cost this much, but you know, if labor, if lumber goes up, it's gonna cost this much. And that this much was enough to throw my deals into but see, absolute fucktard. see, that's why you find fucktard.
1: suppliers that are smart enough to hedge themselves the same way that airliners hedge sure. themselves with, with fuel costs. Yep. And mean, this they, is construction, there have, aren't smart you know, suppliers. Stop yeah, <laughs> they they should be further out on the curve in terms of it as a commodity, and they know it's a business input cost, so they should be smart and be out further in the curve. But lumber rolled over, I mean, the only, Data point that really has kind of—I well, shouldn't say the only, but one of the others that has kind of uh, rebounded to the upside, indicating more inflation, is used cars. But again, that, that's largely due to the new cars being less available because of the chip shortage, and right. this dovetails into this whole supply chain issue, which is really the crux of the the inflation issue. So, the inflation issue again—if we look at what just what we just saw from the uh, non-farms payroll report from last Friday. We compare that with what we saw in CPI, PPI, and even three weeks ago when we saw the PCE, which is really the personal consumption expenditures. That's really what the Fed focuses on in terms of how they guide monetary policy. I'm not seeing a lot of things that are concerning. In fact, this this CPI print this past week was pretty tepid. Hey, was ben, you want to break out the uh,
2: you want to break out the CPI and and some of these. Uh, um...
1: Yeah, sure, yeah. CPI is just consumer price index. So it's a basket of goods.
2: Uh, Generally,
1: you look at core CPI, which means you strip out food, energy, housing, because those can be more volatile, as you pointed out with lumber and and other things. Uh, So looking at core CPI, these were actually below expectation. Uh, And you have core PCE as well. Now, by the way, PCE, which I mentioned, personal consumption expenditures, this is more what businesses are selling products and goods at versus CPI, which is what the consumers are, are purchasing them for. So there's a nuance to it. That's why they're slightly different, um, but essentially congruent. I mean, if you put them on a chart, would right. it, it's negligible, the difference. But the point is that... Um, you know, CPI came in below expectations. Now, is it ramped up year over year? Of course it is, because at this time last year we still had serious concerns about COVID. You had bottlenecks in supply chain that were at that time just starting to metastasize, and so of course you've seen these these moves in the index. But to the extent that this is translated into what would be called you know sticky inflation, I'm not. I don't. I'm not sure I see that. I'm not well, sure that I see that. And, so and so the, we... the, the the scare? You know that the you know the fear of, of runaway inflation to me is, is totally overblown.
2: Now, I think, you know, I, because the, the way I think a lot of people are looking at this, um, whether rightly or wrongly is, I mean, I think if you're trying to rationalize it, some people will say, look, you know, some inflation is going to be expected. We were, the, the economy was, you know, uh, intentionally depressed because of COVID with Correct. shutdowns <laughs> and, and the supply chain issues, you know, around the world. And so you, you went from, you know, basically no movement all of a sudden to everybody going back to work, but also in that time where we had no movement, we had this, you know, these huge injections of cash into, um, you know, the U.S. economy with, with, you know, various types of checks and, and with some mm-hmm. some of the moves that the Fed made. And so, right. like, you know, and a lot of people are, are trying to say, and, and, and I can, I, I think I buy this argument, and maybe you can... Um, flesh it out for me a little bit more, but, you know, a lot of those things are are why we're seeing some of the, what feels like this sort of big boom in inflation because of some of those factors. And so I guess the question is, is that true? Does the, you know, does the impact of COVID, does the impact of the injection of cash, are those having impacts on our prices now, right? I mean, just, you know, with people, what people are paying, you know, for goods and and what businesses are paying for goods, you know, are those, big factors in it or are they smaller than i think some people <laughs> yeah want that's to a good be.
1: question i mean listen in my view the notion that monetary policy and let's let's separate monetary policy from fiscal policy right fiscal yep. policy is politics monetary policy is arbitrated by the fed and you know to me what's funny is that um You know, people tend to say, you know, money printer go burr, right? Uh, Jerome Powell can print us out of any kind of economic issues and stuff like that. And there's some truth to that. But to the extent that monetary policy is what's driven inflation, I, I totally, totally disagree with that because really what's driven inflation is an imbalance between supply and demand. With the bottlenecks as it relates to goods, you know, coming to the U.S. or even globally, uh... Meeting demand—that's been the biggest gap of all, and that's what's caused price to go higher. This is like economics 101, right? right. You learn this sure. in your undergrad in and college, and so—and what I would point to as it relates to the mitigated effect of monetary policy is if you look at the overnight repo markets, for example. You know, so overnight repo markets are basically banks are flush with cash because they've been. You know, they've been infused with all this cash via these, um, you know, all these fed facilities that were implemented as emergency facilities. And they've got so much cash, a lot of which, I mean, most of which I should say, they're not lending out. So what are they doing? They're basically putting it into these overnight repo facilities where they're getting, you know, their five or ten basis points or whatever they're getting out of it. Um, And they're basically just recycling that. And it's just this huge slosh of money. It's not necessarily getting out. To the average john q consumer i mean keep in mind the unemployment uh enhanced unemployment and extended unemployment expired first week of september uh so, so that's off that we haven't seen a stimmy check in in several months so there's it's now yes our our home Uh, household balance sheets in better shape than they had been historically? Yes, of course they are. I think that's a good thing. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But you know, consumer spending, in fact today, uh, retail sales number was very strong. I mean, people are still spending money. But is that what's feeding inflation? I disagree. I, I think what's feeding inflation is that we still need to see a resolution to the bottleneck issue from supply chain, because what you've got is a dislocation between supply and demand. And of course, you're seeing prices uh move higher as a result you're not seeing it in the treasury market which is the key component i mean one five seven today we close on the 10 year if we were up around two percent at this point in time uh given that context then i would be concerned but but that's my take on it and there are plenty of people who disagree with me but uh you know i well, i have to put my money where my mouth is
2: so my, my next question goes into energy prices and directly you know what people are seeing at the pump Right. I mean, because I think, you know, when you say energy, you've been you're you're looking at it from a different perspective than, you know, the guy filling up his truck or, you know, the person putting gas in their minivan. Right. And so, you know, they're just they're looking at it and they're saying, okay, I'm paying three fifteen for gas today. But, you know, this time last year when Trump was president, I was paying, you know, two fifty a gallon. And so because of Biden's specific policies, that is why gas is now, you know, 75 cents more than it was a gallon. And you can't convince me otherwise. And so, Ben, I'm asking you to convince me otherwise. (laughs) Well, listen, no
1: president in the history of the world U.S. president or otherwise controls gas prices. This is an open market and that's just how it works. What about the debt over course, Saudi Arabia? You've got OPEC like, and they you can you know, kind of pull the levers as it relates to output and so forth. But this is, it becomes a political issue. And to me, it's one of those laughably uh, ridiculous issues that somehow become political. Biden has nothing to do with the price that you pay at the pump. And by the way, I mean again. I, in fact, I, since you brought this up, I brought up it's, it's it's RBOB. If anybody wants to look at gasoline futures, the tickers RBOB. I'm just looking at it now versus where it was back in let's just say 2018. I'm looking at 2018 May of 2018. We basically just broke out above that, which is 2.26. So this is a you know national uh, per gallon mean, right? right? So it's not even like we're in some crazy inflationary uh situation even with regard to just consumer price of gas uh it's it shouldn't be a political issue uh it's got nothing to do with with biden's policies certainly regarding energy but um you know and, it's a global and, market and and ben, i mean can we that.
2: can i mean can you can you also just talk about where and the reason why i'm asking you some of these questions i know that they're uh, you know a little i guess um uh, um you know, like you said, introductory level questions, but I mean, oh, no, funny, you know, no, when well, we're, you know, when I'm if, good, because you guys are always talking uh, about crazy <laughs> shit. Like if, if you know, but if me and Jim are sitting at a bar and, 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 you know, Dan from uh, uh, the, you know, the local, you know, 216 labor union comes up and, and says, you know, we're paying more at the pump and it's because of Biden, I, I guess, you know, like getting into the, the nitty gritty of, of what the real causes of the, the, you know, increase of, of the price of gasoline, um, it kind of gets lost, right? Like they they their their eyes immediately glaze over. Right. So I mean, you know, a, a lot of people talk about Biden's policies, and and can we talk about where the United States is in terms of like dependency on oil from foreign nations, right? Um, you know, people are just like you know, under Trump we were you know energy independent, and we you know all of our oil was coming from us, and now under Biden clearly that's changed. Um, can you talk about you know, the, the, like the numbers in terms of uh, the percentage of oil we bring in from, from foreign nations, and, and I hate to kind of drop that on you without, you know. Uh, no,
1: no, no, that's fine. No, no, I just, I think you bring up, actually you illustrate a great point, which, it, first of all, what people need to understand is it relates to policy coming out of Washington, D.C., these move at a glacial pace. For somebody to say that it happened under one administration no more than 18 months ago, 24 months ago, and all of a sudden we're in this polar opposite reality, right? is just It's just being short-sighted. It's not to understand how, you know, macroeconomics operate in this space, you know? Just because you've got a new president, again, it's easy to point fingers. Um, you know, you can think about all the things under Trump that were problematic that you could have said, hey, you know, you can point to Trump or you could point to a previous administration. Obviously, that's the whole game of politics is to figure out how to, you know, the blame you get game. your flowers sure. for all the good stuff and, and pass the buck for all the, the shit stuff. But, but no, truthfully, I mean, um, there's really no meaningful difference. When you talk about energy independence, you're really talking about the shale oil um, component of what we do in the U.S., which is largely concentrated in the Plain States. That, that only really changes as crude prices drop. When I say crude prices, I'm talking about West Texas Intermediate WTI. When, when WTI under Trump, I might add, was down in the 30 handles, right, you know, these shale oil businesses that employ hundreds of thousands of people in the United States, okay, they can't find capital, they go out of business, they become, they succumb to essentially consolidation when you see protracted periods of time where crude oil's in a 30 handle, right, mm-hmm. and that was under Trump, okay.
0: When you say 30-handle, that's is that $30 per barrel? What, what?
1: No, 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 $30 per, yeah, WTI, $30, like I'm talking oh. a 30-handle, like whether it's 30, 35, 36, whatever it is. But within that 30 range, when Trump was president, you know, that's where crude was generally trading. And that's really problematic for some of these, uh, you know, businesses, private businesses that employ, like I said, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. To, to produce shale oil, to extract it and refine it into usable crude. That's 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 a real problem when you talk about American energy independence. High crude prices are good for US energy independence. It means there's gonna be capital that flows into these businesses and they're gonna be able to extract more, hire more people, build a more robust business. Um, th- these are downstream effects. You know, When we talk about these issues, these macro issues, it's one thing to talk about first order thinking, but it's another to talk about second order, third order, fourth order thinking in terms of the cascading impacts of these things. It's not as simple as just, you know, line goes up or line goes down. There's a whole mosaic of factors I think that people need to take into consideration. And when you infuse politics into it, it, you know, it injects that kind of you know kind of short-sightedness and so kind of tribalism that, so i guess the important.
2: next question would be right like because if you're a trump supporter you're going to get immediately defensive of of what you said just about shale and wti under trump um can you give a little insight as to why those uh shale numbers were so low at that time
1: well yeah i mean you had you had trump calling for it I mean, he was putting public pressure on OPEC. I mean, it's it's not unlike he was putting public pressure on the Federal Reserve to, you know, provide cheaper money. This is pre-COVID, right? right? I mean, everybody remembers this. He used to beat the shit out of Jerome Powell and say, this guy's a clown. He should give me, you know, uh, he should give me a federal funds rate of, of 0%, just like Obama did post-financial uh, crisis, right? I mean, this guy was clowning around. He's out there just throwing this shit out there. So— Yeah, I mean, he was putting pressure on OPEC, you know, he's putting pressure because he knew and I give him credit because, you know, he is, you know, you guys know my opinion on Trump. But I mean, (laughs) one thing is that he is, I mean, he's a carnival barker. He's a snake oil salesman, if you want to say it that way. But he understood that low gas prices was uh, a political windfall for his campaign. And so, hence, he he put a lot of pressure uh, using the bully pulpit internationally to, you know, uh essentially you know open up the the valves open up the you know the 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 floodgates when it came to oil production out of opec plus
2: right and so i guess the 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 connection there is that so we push the pressure on opec to open up their valves um it pushed that it pushes down the prices of oil which everybody here locally, you know, in the U.S., it's just like gas is cheaper, yay. But then for but it puts
1: a lot of people out of work. It puts yeah, people yeah. out
2: of work. Like so, the people here, like the shale producers and oil producers here, can't necessarily keep up, right? It's big you know, big business versus small business, uh, essentially. And the small guys here end up kind of, you know, like you said, uh, consolidating and getting washed out because of the the inflow of OPEC. And now, you know, now we're seeing a higher demand and, you know, now the U.S. oil producers are trying to keep up with that. But it's hard for them to keep pace because of, you know, their, you know, the last few years of kind of being squeezed out.
1: Yeah. And and I mean, that's the whole point is that these are macroeconomic issues. They're not political issues. You know, so when people try to construe them as political issues, it's just it's just misguided stuff. I mean, this really has nothing to do with you know Biden policy or even Trump policy, other than his outward pressure, uh, I mean, th- these are macroeconomic factors that are largely related to, again, bottlenecks that resulted from COVID and basically a global economic shutdown. And n- now you've got a resurgence of demand with the Delta variant largely mitigated. You guys probably heard about the Merck uh, Therapeutic. We've talked about it, ago. yeah. yeah. We talked about Yeah, it. I mean that well, Merck therapeutic is incredible. I mean, if there's a pill regimen you could take orally that's going to prevent you from having to go to the hospital if you get infected, God forbid. I mean, that is a game changer as it relates to de- uh, Delta sure. variant because uh, this is a prophylactic essentially that is a- applicable to multiple strains of coronavirus. Well, it, coronavirus but, but, uh, ben, off. it's yeah. not even a
0: prophylactic; it's a treatment rather than. Uh, so the 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 um, vaccines are prophylactic. This is actually you've got it. And you're getting treated. Sorry, you jumped into my yeah, and, area of expertise. And, 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 yeah, no, and I'm no, just going to... No. Yeah, and, and, exactly. And, and, and the reason all... I
1: use that word is just because that, that was some of the commentary from the... It's actually called, I think it's Ridgeback uh, Pharmaceuticals. that They are partnered with Merck to, to develop this drug. In fact, I think it was they that had had made the commentary that this could potentially be a prophylactic in terms of preventing disease. But yeah, no, excellent. I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Jim, because yeah i mean it's 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 not just a therapeutic but potentially also a, a prophylactic so okay. I, I think it's a pretty fascinating drug that could really change the way the market prices and tail risk related to uh delta variant
2: you know and and just a a slight sort of of, of pivot you know once i heard that news from merck about them having a, an actual treatment for this um you know my stance shifted a little bit on COVID and and the push for vaccines right i, I was never comfortable with you know mandates and and sort of the the you know divide that has taken over the country in terms of pro-vax, anti-vax, um, because right. it just there, there was there's obviously been so much negative that is that has come from it, right? It's literally just driving people apart uh, in, in an insane rate. But once I hear that, okay, we have a treatment for it. Um, yeah, ideally, you would still want people to, to to get the vaccine to try not to get it. But I can soften my stance on that whole thing, and not that my stance was very hard on vaccines. But mm-hmm. I can really bring myself around to look. I mean, between you know people having you know having had COVID and having antibodies, um, and some you know some form of a, of a natural immunity to a degree, the fact that we have a vaccine and now that we have a treatment, you know, I can if if I'm in the the Biden administration, I am really pushing. And advocating and talking about what Merck is doing in terms of a treatment, uh, and and really trying to spin that, and and I'm also from a from a standpoint of, of, of governing and and policy, uh, slowly not necessarily backing away from from vaccine mandates and and encouraging people to get vaccines, but you know softening that stance a little bit by supporting it and bullying it with the idea that we may have a viable treatment on the way. I,
1: listen, I agree hundred percent. I think you need to back away from mandates.
2: I, I actually think mandate I
1: mean, you guys know my stance just you know more broadly ideologically. I, you know, I kind of had always fancied myself a libertarian, even that's been adulterated, with you know, as a result yes, of the trump years. and And you know that's why I have such disdain for for Trump, as you guys know.
2: right. but um, I mean, like but politically, I mean, you're you're a conservative, especially a fiscal conservative. Um, and, 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 in a lot of instances, I think, uh, you know, sociopolitically conservative as well. Um, right. and so I, I, you know, I mean, there are people who may have not heard you before. I know there's a few people that when we, when we publish this, I'm going to send this directly to them. Um, and I'm sure if they even listen that they'll, they'll still have you know, there are complaints and, and bitches and (laughs) moans, but, but I still, I I think that, you know, like you're, you're not, you clearly are not a fan of Trump, but you are, um, you know, a registered Republican and have been a conservative your entire life.
1: No, I'm not, to be clear, I'm not a registered Republican at all, but, but I generally would tend to vote more red than I would, but again, I mean, I, I've been politically homeless now for, for quite some time, unfortunately,
2: no, it's, I, I mean, I, yeah, I respect I, that. I don't think it's unfortunate, right? Like, a, I think it's unfortunate. I just respect it for having those no, I, I, of conviction. No, I do I mean, I, I just. I, I think that. <laughs> I, I think that over the last, I would say, ten years, um, I, I feel like you know, having a political home, saying that I'm a Republican, I'm a conservative, I'm a progressive, I'm a Democrat, um, are, are some of the things that are feeding some of the issues that we're having on on a broader political yeah. level. And, you know, people drawing the line in the sand because of their political affiliation, you know, who they align themselves with uh, because of that political affiliation, no matter what, uh, I think is really problematic. So being able to step away from that line and just say, look, I'm looking for what's best for the greater good. I'm looking at what makes sense. Um, You know, from a policy standpoint, you know, your focus is the market and, and others might be uh, more, more, you know, social welfare type things. But I, I think mm-hmm. that being able to step away from those political ideologies that we feel that we have to defend no matter what is, is smarter and taking a more uh, objective approach to, you know, what actually makes sense, right? And just being yeah. willing to, 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 to do that. So when you say you don't have a, a, a political party home, to me, I'm just like, yeah, high five. That's, that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's, that's a little bit off the point. So we've talked about energy. We've talked about market volatility. Um, you know, we jumped into some of the supply chain you know issues. and I want to get a little bit into the supply chain more. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Biden and, and there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, basically the port of Los Angeles becoming a 24 hour operation to help kind of get things moving. Um, you know, there are some concerns. Do we have enough people driving trucks to be able to get all the shit out? Um, let's. Can we talk about sort of solutions to the supply chain issues? Um, you, know, at, from, as, you know, from your vantage point as someone who deals with the market, who's, you know, managing funds and, and you know, sort of looking at all this, what, where are we at from a solution standpoint? And can I throw something in here and just ask both of you, have you ever read the, the book
0: The Goal? I have not. Okay. No. It's all about bottlenecks and how bottlenecks impact businesses. And it's a book that I read that changed my life. Ellie um, Goldratt, I believe is the guy's name. And it talks about how when you've got one specific thing slowing down your ability to deliver your ultimate goal, and the goal is to make money. In this case, it's to make money by delivering goods. Right now, the bottleneck is the ports. But then when you solve that, the bottleneck becomes the uh, trucking and shipping and anyway, it's a very worthwhile, very worthwhile read, and it's all about bottlenecks and, and streamlining businesses. I'll, I'll throw throw back to you, Ben, but it's it's a, a book that I'm going to yeah. recommend everyone.
1: No, 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 seriously, Jim. That I, I need to read that. This sounds like a fascinating book. I'd love to. And you know, you, one of the commonalities between the points you just made is that this is really a labor issue. You've got longshoremen at the ports that are not going to twenty four seven. Why? Why were? I mean, this is. 2021, you know, United States of America, most advanced, uh, most developed economy in the world. We're not running our ports 24/7. I mean,
2: huh? Especially when we need to, right? Well, well I mean, it, right? well, yeah. I mean, but I think there's, I mean, I think especially over the last couple of years, I think there's reasons for that, right? Like, I mean, it's, you know, the la- there's there's also the labor shortage, right? Like, you know, in terms of people. You know, and, 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 but this is
1: post-COVID. I mean, pre-COVID, we didn't have so much a labor shortage. The labor shortage really emerged, you know, as we've gotten on the other side of this, where you've got now, you know, they've again created these political angles to it, where it's like, oh, you've got enhanced unemployment benefits that are keeping people at home that would otherwise be at work. Which, of course, was proven false by this last NFP print, when you didn't see a lot of people coming back even post expiration of enhanced UI. Right. It, 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 it's not just a labor issue on the longshoremen and, and the ports, it's also, as Jim pointed out in the truck drivers, the the way you solve that issue is you pay people more money. It's very simple. Um, that That's how you, you know, address this issue. I have no problem with businesses eroding margins to pay people more money to expand capacity. Well, I think you that's don't, good. but
2: they're not your margins. <laughs> What's that? I said you don't, but they're not your margins, right?
1: They are my margins if I own part of the company. Oh.
2: Ah, All right. Let me see. No, but I'm on. serious. Wah, wah, wah. I mean, look, I wouldn't invest
1: in a company that I didn't think was trying to maximize it. I mean, look at FedEx, for instance. Draw up a chart of FedEx. It's got its dick completely ripped off over the last week. Hold on. It took 30 Three minutes ones. for a dick
0: ripped off. The longest time of, <laughs> of you on our show without a dick ripped off reference. Sorry. Go on.
1: No, no, but my point is, I mean, this is a business that has incredible capacity and an incredible footprint, and they're just not delivering in a time of need. I mean, you know, I don't care so much about margins as I do about market share, right? If I'm FedEx and I'm fighting tooth and nail with with UPS, and I guess to some extent, you know, DHL and others, I don't even think USPS would even, you know,
0: uh, be- Where where does Amazon come into that conversation?
1: Yeah, but, but the point is, you know, look, I mean, you you take share, you take capacity. You, you, if you have to eat a little shit on margins, it's going to pay for itself down the road. So, so you know, again, the, the, the issues at the port as well as the, you know, and it's, by the way, it's not 100% labor. There are issues with chassis and other things, even just steel containers themselves. There's a shortage of that as well. But that's, again, all because of these various bottlenecks. And, uh, you know, again, I think. When you think about the domestic solutions, and again, it's not necessarily political uh, fodder. It's not something that's going to get solved in Washington. And these are private industries that just need to simply step up the game and say, look, you know, maybe we're paying guys 15 bucks an hour. Maybe we got to pay them 20. Maybe we got to pay them 21. Whatever it is, I own your stock. I would rather you take margin, erode margins off your wages for you to take more share. I like that as as an investor. So um, I, I think that's a key issue with what you brought up, Steve.
0: Cool. And does that also impact the um, spending index or spending tendencies of people when people who drive trucks or work in fast food restaurants or work in restaurants in general, when they have more money, they spend it. Mm-hmm. When you give that money to, the, to Jeff Bezos, it doesn't go back into the economy. It puts <laughs> William Shatner in space. Well, I had to sneak that in there.
1: I, I so listen, that that it go so that's a good point, Jim, and I, I want to address it because we we kind of touched on it briefly earlier, which is that, you know, household balance sheets are better than they've ever been. Savings, you know, consumer uh, the average American in terms of their their savings, these are at, at pretty elevated levels historically. So You could argue that the stimulus and the accommodative monetary policy and maybe the, you know, enhanced UI, whatever you want to call it, obviously the lack of being able to go out and actually spend money, right? Imagine all the dollars people were to spend on vacations and other things that they couldn't do. Um, They are saving money at the moment. They do have money and they're, you know, uh, they – they, they've kind of been in this trend where they're trying to reintroduce themselves into being spenders again and like i said retail sales was yesterday at 8:30 a.m was a pretty hot number so people are spending money but at the same time they're still sitting on a lot more cash than they had been prior to covid and so it'll be interesting to see in the coming months how uh, consumer spending trends uh, materialize with that reality
2: and so I guess um, I, I'm going to wrap it up here only because I, I have to get to dinner soon. Um, hmm. I'll have people waiting, and I'm fucking starving. But um, <laughs> you so can tell. You can You, can you, 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 you won't finish. like me when I'm <laughs> hangry. If Steve ever stars in the Hulk part two. Can I, can I finish? Okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> see, can uh, my point. Yeah, I'm getting there. <laughs> um, so I guess, Ben, you know, what are we looking at you know in terms of the uh, – the market coming up, right? I mean, I know I, I'm not telling you necessarily to predict winners and losers here, but you know, what are some of the sectors from an investment investment standpoint people should be looking at? Now, I know that there's some things teetering that could inf- it could impact Im- impact that, whether it be. Um, you know, the infrastructure bill, the Build Back Better bill, things like that. But, you know, from your position, you know, managing a hedge fund and, and you know, constantly, you know, just waist deep, neck deep in the market, you know, mm-hmm. where, where should people kind of be looking uh, in terms of, you know, investing their money uh, intelligently?
1: Yeah, no, listen, that's a great question, and, and you, you know, you nailed it. I mean, I, my crystal ball, it, it doesn't always work. Sometimes it does, but, but, I mean, looking ahead, I mean, if the concern is inflation, and I think that's a reasonable concern, I mean, the areas that you're going to be safe are energy and financials. Uh, the other trade that, I mean, again, by the way, it's not financial advice. This is just I'm just giving you some insights into the way I'm positioning my own fund and the Absolutely. way I'm kind of uh, navigating this uncertainty. And it's been useful because the core thesis doesn't change as it relates to big cap tech and just the deflationary impact of the broader economy that tech represents. And tech in terms of its growth trajectory is exponential. It's not linear. So one thing to keep in mind is take the core thesis of my, again, I'll just use Steelyard Capital as an example we're very much leaning into growth tech, but blue chip growth tech, not this long duration. <laughs> Kathy Wood shit, some of this crazy biotech nonsense. Yeah, like, and if you, you, know, if you don't know who fucking, Kathy Wood is, you know, Kathy yeah. Wood is, has Correct. gained you know, a like, lot of like, popularity. Like Two hundred times sales. I mean, yeah. like, give me a fuck. No, no, it, it's it's that. So that's the core thesis. But as it relates to this, you know, the shorter term tactical question that you're asking, Steve. It's energy and financials. And the reason I say so, and, and, you know, this was validated this week with with big banks reporting earnings. You had J.P. Morgan, you had City Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs this morning. These guys just all smacked it out of the fucking park. I mean, these guys were putting out phenomenal quarters. But this is inflation protected yield that you can find in financials and energy. So I think those are interesting places to be. Energy, obviously, if you're concerned about inflation, there's going to be some growth there. If you're thinking about rates rising, uh, obviously adjacent to inflation, you want to be in financials, obviously, as rates go higher, margins improve for financials. The other trade, and this is more of a tactical kind of hedge to this that I would suggest to people, is now that the Fed has largely begun unwinding their capital market exposure so they've been selling you know the corporate debt that they acquired as an emergency facility so they've begun to sell you know their holdings in hyg which is the high yield stuff junk bonds as well as lqd which is the etf for investment grade corporate debt they've begun to unwind these largely so i think as you reintroduce risk into capital markets capital markets meaning corporate debt i think you can short high yield uh, corporate debt right now and be really comfortable with that because as you reintroduce risk into this space, you know, high yield should be, you know, seven and a half, eight 8%, I think, in this environment. And it's down around the four, four and a half percent range. And so I I think that's an easy area to hedge yourself and and go short Uh, HYG or JNK is another ETF that that captures that. Um, Or if you really want to get cute, you can go ahead and go into the bond market. And replicate it as well, but but yeah. those are two easy vehicles to do it through ETF is, is HYG and JNK. Excuse me, JNK, and full disclosure, I mean I'm I'm short um, both of those, and I think that's just a good hedge as we move through this kind of uh, inflation inflation uncertainty. But uh, in, yeah, hopefully that's a good answer.
2: No, that's a, that's a that's a great answer, um, and you know I pat myself on the back because I was just talking to Jim the other day, um, you know earlier in the week how you know Exxon. Uh, mobiles or yeah ExxonMobil is finally starting to kind of move in the right direction not mm-hmm. just starting but they have been um, y- you know I got in with them sort of long um, uh, I don't know probably about uh, almost a year ago um, right. and they were they were down like around you know I think like 38 uh, something like 38 dollars a share or something along those lines and now they're they're up uh, around, I think they closed at like sixty one fifty eight today or something like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, yeah. You, you they, know, they, and they're, they're not the only way. ones, but that, that's just like, I, I really dug into them and that's how I felt good with them. So I, I made a decent sized move and I'm patting myself on the back for that. Uh, now, <laughs> uh, we'll see how smart of a play that is, uh, down the road, or if I just cut bait no, no, at I some point. I think
1: it's a fine play because there's two, there's just two things I want to mention before we get off. One is that, you know, listen, uh, fossil fuels and legacy oil, it's not going anywhere. I mean, even the most aggressive projections as it relates to EV, you know, are are still out to 2025, 2030. And by the way, vehicles aren't the only consumers of uh, fossil fuels. And I would further go, if you break it down by subset, you know, lightweight vehicles, you know, passenger vehicles are very vulnerable to evolution of an adoption of EV. But industrial vehicles, uh, you know, semi trucks, yeah. dump trucks, uh, cement trucks, you know, a, a lot of these commercial, industrial-related vehicles, the, these just from a power standpoint, they, they're not at all susceptible to this. In fact, I'll, I'll maybe send you guys a, a graphic that I have on this, which is really an interesting. Um, to, so that's one thing is it relates to Exxon. So. so I, you know uh, obviously legacy oil isn't going anywhere right. uh, and again the other component like I said is that um, you're gonna find some yield in that space that you're not gonna find uh, in other sectors and and yield right now everybody's hungry for yield with how you know accommodative monetary policy has been so I think I think it's a smart trade Steve I, it's got my seal of approval and I think it can hey, be okay damn. for a minute
2: But um, dick stays on today <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Put it, keep
1: it on. I say <laughs> keep it on. I, I ride that in a Q1. By the way, I, you know, just for everybody listening, if they are investors, I mean, you know, you obviously want to be thinking about tax planning at this point in the year. You know, sometimes it's good to sell your losers, harvest some tax losses at this point. But if you are winning on a trade, you know, maybe maybe get over to the other calendar year before you liquidate, just so you can you know push that tax bill off. Uh, you don't have to pay Uncle Sam. till the, the following April instead of this coming April. So that's always a good thing to keep in mind as well.
2: Well, thanks, Ben. Um, you know, I, I mean, every time there's, I, I always learn something new when we talk to you. Um, I love uh, your, your a great follow on Twitter if you're into the, the financial markets. Um, I think, you know, some people have said, oh man, he, he, you know, he talks about my head or whatever and my response- Yeah, that would be me. <laughs> well, yeah, but not just, not just you. I mean, other people on Twitter. But what I've told people is, I mean, I don't think the, the move is for Ben to dumb things down. I think it's the move is for people to learn more, right? Um, we have more access to the markets or people have more access to the, the markets than they've ever had um, with the number of of retail um, you know trade houses, whether it's TD Ameritrade or even Robin Hood or, or what have you. Um, And so if you're going to get involved and you you want to, then then you need to learn about it. You know, don't just rely on CNBC because if you're seeing stuff on CNBC as a move to make, then it's too late, right? Like you can't um, rely on someone else to tell you when to make the move. You have to be able to see it and do it for yourself. Otherwise, you're going to see a lot of losses uh, just across the board. And you won't have success if you're relying on those sort of um, venues to tell you when to move. So the more you can understand what Ben is saying in real time or go look it up and apply it, then the better off you'll be, you know, making those decisions for yourself.
1: Yeah, no, 100%. I appreciate that too. And it's, it's always great connecting with you guys and a ton of fun. And, and to your point, Steve, I I, I I, think one of the things that if people do sometimes, they're like, man, I, I'm not quite grasping what these guys are talking about, keep in mind, it's like any profession, you know, everybody has their own vernacular, right? One right. thing about, you know, equity markets, risk assets, uh, financial markets broadly, there's all these acronyms and all this terminology. It seems so uh, kind of Daunting. intimidating, but yeah. in fact, once you get your arms around just some of that basic terminology, this stuff, it really is. I mean, it's art more than it is science, yeah. because look, the market can do anything, you know, it, it's 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 all just a function of human psychology. You know,
2: and, and um, the funny thing, the, the last thing I'll say, Ben, and then I, I have to jump ship because I gotta get out of here, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's funny, once I really started to dig in and learn and understand not only the terminology, but like the, the understanding what I was looking at when I was looking at a chart, and understand what I was looking at when I was looking at the financials of these different companies, you feel sort of like a, you have that Neo in the matrix moment, Right where you start to basically see the numbers and understand it, the picture that it's drawing, um, and that's a pretty cool feeling. It's worth digging into just to have that sort of aha sort of moment. So if you're if you're into that sort of thing, then you know definitely start um, Investopedia, Yahoo Finance. Those are good places to start, and then from there, um, you know you can really start to to realize the wealth of just free knowledge that's out there. Um, and then the more you get into it, then you, you know you you realize that it's worth paying, fifty, a hundred dollars a month for you know various different uh, sources of information. So right on. Um, and by the
1: way, I don't charge anybody anything for for uh, for, for my Twitter or for any yeah. appearances I make on podcasts. <laughs> Free of charge. I'm just here to. I'm just some dumb guy that you know. I'm trying to read the tea leaves well, and well,
2: well Jim. Jim why, you. Jim, why did we just send him a check? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. Well, look. Yeah. I gotta. I I have to bolt. Jim's gonna wrap it up with you, Ben. It was great to talk to you, Jim. Uh, I will get on with you. Hate to do this, but I really have to go. I'm also really hungry. No, no. It's and great. Uh, we'll talk with you guys soon. Sounds good. Yeah.
1: No. Thanks so much, Steve. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. Always, man.
0: All right, so we're back. Uh, Steve had to run, but I've got a couple more questions for Ben, just a few things to talk about real quick. Um, I, I don't want to say I'm dumbing it down, but I'm kind of bringing it more into a consumer personal level. First thing is, being a Buffalo guy, I love me some chicken wings. And chicken wing prices have gone fucking bananas. Um, and this is, I think, it's, it's, a lot of it is supply chain related. I don't know if it was due to the hacks on the food industry, or how distributors handle things because what's been funny to me is I'll go to you know a grocery store and chicken wing prices, you know, raw chicken wings, if you want to make them at home, are reasonable. But then you go to a, a restaurant or bar and they've literally gone up, I would say, 50%, maybe more. In most places I go, I know places that are considering discontinuing chicken wings from their... Um, from their menus because just supply chain and cost makes it not worth their while. So we were talking about this before. Do you have anything to throw in on that?
1: Yeah, no, no, Jim. It's a it's a good question, and and like you and I just chatted about real briefly. I mean, when you think about something like something like chicken wings, that you know there is a sensitivity. There, I think you were dead on when you said it's supply chain related. It's also labor related, obviously, and if you can sure. imagine. You know, with the the shutdown, let's call it six, eight, twelve months, even in some cases, where you know you did you didn't have even labor to you know process the chicken, it, it causes problems. And and to your point about different business channels, I mean, grocery store that's selling raw chicken wings, you know, to what extent does that grocery store who's fighting tooth and nail with their competition, whether it's Kroger, Walmart, the Whole Foods, You're sure, Giant Eagle, uh, Ralph's, who, whoever, right? <laughs> you know, fighting for that market share to keep that consumer, they're willing to take those margins as low as possible. Whereas the guy that's buying, you know, he's he's buying at a bar, right? He's buying from probably a Cisco or some other food broker. He's not buying nearly the quantity, so he's getting a worse unit price. He's gotta pass that price along to that customer far you know, far more so than the you know, the the chain grocer that can, you know, they can afford to erode their margin to keep on to share. So that's just something to keep in mind when you talk about the chicken wing issue.
0: Yeah, I, you know, it's gonna be funny to me to see what happens going forward because this is classic market shit, right? If prices come down for restaurants and bars, you know, they they, they might have the urge to, uh, well, you know, an order of wings used to be eight ninety nine, now it's fourteen ninety nine. People are willing to pay it, so we'll keep charging it. But then. Some places will say, "Well, yeah, we can undercut that, and we'll take the market share from you." Um, and I mean, it's it's kind of a weird commodity because I'm going to go to the bar I want to go to because it's that bar. But then I'm going to eat wings there or not eat wings there if I'm annoyed with paying fourteen ninety nine for you know ten wings rather than eight ninety nine. Um, and so I'm going to be very curious to see how that <laughs> impacts the market. And, I mean, maybe not quite as much as gas prices, but food prices in restaurants are no, things I, that I, hit people day to day.
1: I'll tell you exactly how it's going to go. I mean, it, you're going to see price pressure. You're going to see prices come back down to normal because everybody has to compete on that same level plane. Once you see normalization in the supply chain, in this case relative to, you know, uh, Meats chicken etc you're going to see ultimately the same margins reemerge I mean, again you know this is independent of any kind of major shift in, in labor costs or real estate costs which I don't foresee the, those prices will normalize I have no doubt I mean the thing about chicken wings is that it's not very sticky it's <laughs> not a pun
0: when you say um, sticky how, how... Put that sticky out there for the layman. Like,
1: you know what's sticky? I'll tell you what's sticky in terms of inflation are wages.
0: You know, when wages
1: go up, it's pretty hard to give people a, a bump in pay and then take it back. That is something I consider to be sticky. Um, when it comes to commoditized categories, commodities by definition are subject you know, to market pressure. Sure. And as such, the, those are very less – very much more or less likely to be sticky, uh, quote unquote. I use air quotes. I know we're just on audio, right, right, so right. air quotes. But, but yeah, I mean stickiness is is very specific to certain sectors, and it's not something that I would imagine would manifest in in, in food. Yeah, and and
0: you know this is, I'm derailing a little bit here, but it's tough because some businesses, like you know, pizza joints that deliver food for their income the mm-hmm. cost of the food and the cost of the labor are much more impactful than say a bar that's making its mm-hmm. money on alcohol and they're keeping you there with something so bars can take a hit on the price of wings way better than uh, right. a pizza wing joint and it's just going to be a weird dynamic man and again I know I'm talking about a really simple item but it it's in a lot of people's lives including mine you could easily argue that if chicken wings were less in my life, I'd be better off, but no, no, I love them. <laughs> I,
1: I, and listen, I mean, I just, you know, since you brought it up, I just pulled up the chart just like I'm sitting here talking to you from my office, so I just pulled it up. There's, there, there, you know, the, the Federal Reserve, uh, they put out economic data. It's called FRED, F-R-E-D. They put out all kinds of different economic data. They actually have an index that's called a Sticky Price Consumer Price Index, And so that's exactly what it is, and it tracks these various sectors that tend to be stickier than others, and it's actually spiked downward over the last several weeks, and that's commensurate with what we've seen with the the rather tepid uh, CPI print, uh, PPI print earlier today, and then of course the PTE print from last week, or excuse me, I think it was actually two weeks ago. But the point is, Even the sticky consumer price index is starting to roll over and normalize So so some of these issues they're very topical right now because these are like to your point I mean somebody going out to a bar and saying hey, I'm gonna have a couple of beers and and grab me some wings and what the hell How did this price double? You you know that that, I do think that that is something that is uh, And I hate to use the word but transitory Because transitory is like the worst word that you can possibly use, right? Like uh, everybody's vilified that word because that's been the rhetoric of the Fed. But but truly, uh, Jim, I I I think those prices normalize by probably the second quarter of next year into twenty twenty two. And
0: what's what's the financial play if they do? If you if you're anticipating that,
1: I don't think you can really trade it. I mean, I don't know if you necessarily want to. I I don't think you can really trade it. I guess. I mean, I wouldn't try to trade it. You can. You can buy BW three stock. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I wouldn't, you know, particularly for just, you know, the, the average retail investor, you know, the the average retail investors, I'm glad you asked the question. It gives me a chance to make this point, which is the average retail investor shouldn't be trying to tactically trade shit like this. Um, the advantage that the retail investor has is the x axis is so long, right? It, when I say x axis, I'm talking about time horizon. Sure. If you're a retail investor... And you're, you know, you, sure, maybe you have a tactical brokerage account, that's one thing. Or maybe you've got this tax deferred IRA, 401k, whatever, where you can just self manage it and do whatever you want. Your x axis in those scenarios are so, so far out. What I do as running a levered, you know, long short hedge fund, my x axis is about 48 hours. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm, but, By no means am I saying like I date because I don't I don't day trade at all, but I manage risk. And I do that all through mostly derivatives. But it all impacts my access to liquidity and the parameters which within which I have to live. The average retail investor has a just far extended X axis. And the longer the X axis, the more opportunity you have to be right. And one thing that's interesting about financial markets is everybody gets a chance to be right. I mean, the contrarians, right? The bulls, the bears, sure. everybody. Everybody gets a chance to be right. Especially so enough-
0: especially you selectively report.
1: Yeah, well, but the point is a long enough x axis is you're going to be right eventually. So, you know, the question that you ask is how do you trade the inflated price chicken wings? My advice is you don't. All right. Because it's a fool's errand. And I would say, look, if you're a retail investor, that's either just having some fun in a brokerage account or you've got your your tax deferred account you think think about what the world is going to look like in 5 10 15 years and try to invest with that in mind as opposed to what's the world going to look like in you know five or six weeks
0: all right so ben i know you're up against a time uh crunch as well i really appreciate you coming on uh i want you to pitch uh whatever you want your, your social media your your hedge fund you know pitch away <laughs> I, I don't want to screw it up And then again, I appreciate you so much and it's been way too long. We need to get together for some, uh, some whiskey and who knows what else. Um, but go ahead (laughs) pitch away and then we'll close it up.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. We do need to get, I mean, Whiskey Congress is the podcast, so we definitely got to get together for some whiskey. In fact, I mean, just for those listening, that's how Jim and Steve and I first got connected was was over some, I think it was some boss hog.
0: It was uh, a rabbit hole.
1: And we had some great talks on uh, on the markets. Well, that, was, that had to be a few years ago now, but uh, no, nothing to pitch. I mean, if you want to follow me on social media, the, the handle is at King of Convexity. Um
2: that, Spell it so, out. So, yeah, Jim.
1: Yeah, it, it used to be existential, ex, I feel bad uh, about that, by the way. <laughs> zero, T-I-A-L, yeah, that used to be my handle, and I changed it to King and Convexity. This is about, I don't know, maybe six or so, so months ago, but Convexity obviously being a, uh, a reference to, um, not so much, I mean, most people interpret it as a comment towards bond market yields. So, quite I don't actually, swim in the worth, Twitter
0: pool very often. I'm more of a Facebook guy, but anyway. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, no, I, I yeah, I, I, and obviously, Facebook's under a ton of pressure.
0: Then right? there's a, that. That's a whole other conversation. We should probably have oh, over okay. that soon. Yeah, I
1: know. We could go. I know. We won't go off on that. But I do. I would love to talk about that whistleblower with you at some point because I thought that testimony was phenomenal. But anyway, yeah, nothing to pitch. I mean, I just, you know, started my hedge fund 2019, Steely Art Capital. Um, we do some private equity, too. As, as Jim, as you know, I, I, my background is more in CPG, beverage alcohol. So yep. I help incubate and, and finance um, some of these startups. Beverage businesses, and so that's been a fun part of the fund is to do the PE stuff. But yeah, mostly I'm U.S. equities and derivatives, and so yeah, like you guys said earlier, I mean, I'm kind of in the trenches on this stuff every trading
0: day. So this is my, uh, it's my chosen lifestyle. And for, we
1: for better or for worse. Right,
0: right. No, I, I'm I'm impressed with what you've done, man. I respect the cor- the courage to start out on your own. You were very successful in the whiskey marketing game, but you started Steel Yard, and obviously, I wish you the best and I enjoy talking to you every time. We need to get together sometime soon. We are at Whiskey Congress on Instagram and Twitter. Please uh, give us a follow. Give us a, a, a listen. Thank you for listening this far. And we are done.